as we look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, in the midst of these comings and goings, the travels of the July-August season, we praise you and we thank you that we can get our bearings and pause and reflect upon who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what that means practically, purposefully for us. There are going to be some that come here in these services this morning and they've been wearied by life and they were hoping that they might get a summer lift with a lot of outdoor activity. But at the same time, the issues of winter and spring and fall as well as summer create within the mindset that there's got to be something more here for the soul than refreshment and relaxation and times with family, extended relationships and so on. What you do, Father, through the work of Jesus Christ is draw attention to first things. Who matters most? And where the ultimate relationship is to be found in you through Christ. So, Father, in any of these services, if there were those or have been or are people who are seeking, led by the Holy Spirit, to examine the evidence of who Jesus is, speak to that heart, and in your sovereign grace, Father, work in their hearts and lead them to you. Now, Father, in these minutes together as we explore your word, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills as, again, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was verse 14 that triggered a memory, a memory of a particular story that's told by, about Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was interviewing some people who had volunteered to be involved in the Lord's service overseas. And he would typically pose this question, why do you want to go as a foreign missionary? And some of the samples that were given with regard to answers were, well, I want to reach others across the sea because Christ has commanded us to go. And that another said, I want to go because millions are dying without having heard of Jesus. Well, the biographer tells us that Hudson Taylor looked at them thoughtfully for a moment and then said, All of your motives are good, but I'm afraid that they'll fail you in times of severe testing, and you will be tested in life, especially if you're confronted with the possibility of dying for your faith. The only motive that will empower you to remain true is stated in 2 Corinthians 5.14 
which in his vision at that time read, Christ's love constraining you will keep you faithful in every situation. Now he's on to something there because that verse is really the power punch of this chapter. Luke is a physician. And when Luke penned the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts, he used that very same word in the original language, constraining or controlling, to describe a fever that had so gripped the mother-in-law of Simon Peter. Furthermore, as a historian, he used that same word to describe the vice grip that the Romans had when they encircled Jerusalem at a time in which there, there were challenges politically. It carries them with the idea to govern, to seize, or in the English Standard Version, to control. Now, when Jesus' love becomes such an overwhelming sense of presence in your life, he begins to control the thought processes, the decisions, even the way in which you're involved in relationships day in, day out. Now, what I want to do with you this morning is to look at four significant controls Four significant controls that flow out of this sense of Christ's sacrificial love for you and for me and see how this produces a sense of purposefulness in a world of confusion. Now, the first control flows out of verse 9 and 10 that in light of Christ's controlling love, I want you to notice, first of all with me, our aim in life. Our aim in life. Because in verse 9, and you're tracking with me in your Bible, it says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now you have to bear in mind that that was a time period then when it was very uncomfortable to be away from home. To travel meant to live in uncomfortable settings. So now what he is doing at this point is to say whether you are in a state of being comfortable or in a state of being uncomfortable, you need an overarching aim for your life. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now the word aim is rooted in the whole aspect of archery. And what God is saying here is that God himself has established your target, and your target is Jesus Christ who died in your place. Your aim, then, in life is always to be the trajectory, that movement towards that target, Jesus Christ himself. Let me explain it this way, to use another analogy. The architect Frank Lloyd Wright once told of an incident. It seemed insignificant at that time in the early days of his life. He was nine years old. But he went walking across a snow-covered field with his uncle. The biographer tells us that as the two of them reached the far end of the field, his uncle stopped him. He had Frank Lloyd Wright turn around and look back. 
he pointed out that he, his uncle, his own tracks in the snow were straight, true as an arrow. And then young Frank's tracks were meandering all over the field. Lloyd Wright goes on. Notice how your tracks wander aimlessly from fence to the cattle to the woods and back again. And see how my tracks aim directly to my goal? Frank, there's a life lesson here. Now what we do when we see that word at this point then is that we pause and we begin to examine carefully the journeys of our life, the wanderings of our life, the movements of our life, and ask ourselves at any given point, have I substituted the target? Is it the target that God has established for me, Jesus Christ? Or am I continuously opting for alternative targets based upon where I'm at right now? Maybe it's a political target. Maybe it's a job-related target. Maybe it's a family-related target. But when one target doesn't work, we then look for another target. And then when we look back at our life experience, we find our tracks in the snow of the wintertime of life. Continuous energy is marked by those tracks. Continuous confusion is marked by those tracks. When in reality what we've done is substitute our preferences regarding targets for God's. And then as a result, the tracks of life begin to demonstrate to us that we seem to have lost our way somewhere along the way. We've substituted for Jesus. It's possible to substitute politics for Jesus. It's possible to substitute family for Jesus. It's even possible to substitute marriage for Jesus. It's possible to substitute economic and financial gain for Jesus. And when one target no longer works, we find another target, and then we wonder in the winter times of life that come our way, why our tracks continuously shift from side to side. And there's a life lesson for Frank Lloyd Wright. And there's a life lesson for us. Whether convenient or inconvenient, verse 9, whether we are at home or away, it does not say we make it our target. No, God has established our target. Rather, we make it our aim. The target is fixed. We keep our sight on the cross of Christ. We make it our aim to what please him. Now here's the challenge. The typical target is to please self, isn't it? To look for pleasure in life rather than to please God in life. And so the pleasure for self rather than the pleasing of God becomes another substitute of targeting. 
we make it our aim to please him, is what he says. And we're thinking about the tracks of life. To get our attention then, notice what he says in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Stop right there. Not some of us. All of us. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ then validates that very fact. But what captures my attention at this point is that word judgment seat. Comes from a Greek word, describes a Roman setting that Paul himself had to face when he was ministering in Corinth. Because in Acts 18, verse 12, we are told that when Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And there the tribunal was the Bema seat of Rome. Now what Paul is doing is using a political illustration for a spiritual truth. He's saying, I have stood on that Bema seat politically. But it pales in significance to the fact that I will be there spiritually. And my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, is described here that we must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema of Christ. What is utterly fascinating, and I'm looking forward to that day, if we can get to Greece, to walk around in Corinth, is that there is an archaeological find in recent days that has excavated that very Bema seat. It is there for students of church history, of Christian history, to explore. Once again, further evidence of how God has worked in time. There's the Bema seat that Paul is describing here in verse 10, politically, pointing to that ultimate one, spiritually, the one of Christ. Why? That each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So now I ponder the idea of target and aim. I ponder the idea of Bema seat. I pull together verses 9 and 10, and then I take inventory, and I ask myself the necessary questions of life with regard to this compelling, controlling love of Jesus Christ for me. And then I ask myself the question, how's my aim? And what am I truly aiming at? Now, There's a second control. It's found in verse 10. Takes me all the way down, rather verse 11, down through verse 15. Not only do we note our aim in life in 9 and 10, but secondly, our purpose in life, verses 11 through 15. Now he builds off of what he's just said about the Bema seat of Christ. And now in 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, in other words, he's driven not to let his Lord down. His lifelong passion is to keep Jesus as his target. How about you? 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, now he comes about with a sense of motivation, a drive. We persuade others. In this highly intense political season, I'm struck as I examine all the various news accounts of how one seeks to persuade another. What I am most ultimately concerned with is the ultimate matter of for whom and to whom should persuasion be attached. That this ultimate political expression, the Bema seat, weighs so heavily upon Paul in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, not of Rome. We persuade others. He's driven. Are you? But what we are is known to God. Now, Facebook may reveal a lot about us. Snapchat might reveal stuff about us. But there is still the capacity within us to hold back that which we don't want to appear as unattractive about who we are. But what Paul is saying here is that this God who knows you and knows me would still send his son to die for you and die for me, all the more reason then to establish in my mindset my aim, number one, and to establish in my mindset my purpose, number two. Now, Jump down to verse 14 with me. Would you do that? We're tracking in our Bibles. For the love of Christ, you and I are told here, controls us. Again, the word was used in the Gospels to describe crowds surrounding Jesus. It was used to describe the Romans when they would conquer a city. But now notice how the controlling love of Jesus sets your purpose for your life in circle, if you would, the various expressions of the word for, F-O-R, in these verses. In verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Now notice his conclusions of such powerful sacrificial control that grips your mindset. That one has died for all. There was a purposefulness to his death. That was not an accident in time. That was an appointment with time. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. There it is again that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's the negative. 
but for him, that was the positive. Notice how it balances out. And you ask, but on what basis do I have such purpose for living? Here it comes. For him who for their sake died and was raised, you see. Again and again and again. What Paul does now is to condense for you and for me purposefulness. Succinctly, he died for us. We're called to live for him. This letter, both letters, were written to Christians. He's assuming he is writing to believers at this point. This was not so much an evangelistic tract as it was an educational tract to inform believers when they are gathered how to minister when they are scattered with the good news of Jesus. To be able to communicate at work and neighborhoods and so on what our aim in life is to be and what our purpose in life is to be. Now, if you've been tracking what's been happening in the news globally over these last days, you saw the tragedy that 48, 72 hours ago occurred in Munich where again, people lost their lives. But there is a painting there about one who gave his life. There is a painting in Munich, in a particular setting, the Latin Ecce Homo, because comes with it the expression from Pontius Pilate, Behold the man. It's a painting of Jesus standing before Pilate, bound with ropes, crowned with thorns. Those that have been driven by missions knows the powerful, powerful story of Nicholas Zinzendorf. Missionaries can describe his life in detail more so than I. Zinzendorf stood before this very painting and was so stirred in his heart because written in Latin, above and beneath the painting, seemed to be words that were addressing his soul, but in the English we'll put it this way. Here's how it's phrased. This I did for you. What are you doing for me? In the aimlessness of this world and in the confusing tracks of life's journeys, what God has done is to simplify your life with a singular aim and with a singular purpose by reiterating again and again that little word for. For the love in verse 14 of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded, and now you develop your conclusions intelligently. 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, and here comes the validation of purposefulness for your life, died and was raised. So now you set your aim. Now you embrace your purpose. It's about Jesus. Now, there is a third control. And it comes out of verse 16 down to verse 19. Not only our aim in life in 9 and 10, our purpose in life in 11 through 15, but thirdly, our perspective in life in verse 16 through 19. Perspective carries with it here a different mindset when you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A different viewpoint altogether regarding why the world is in the condition that it's in. A different vantage point altogether. Check out 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't label them. We don't categorize them. There is no bias against them. We look at people now through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection realities. So we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard thus no longer, him thus no longer, here it comes, therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've got a new aim. You've got a new purpose. You've got a new perspective on life and on people that we come into this world as sinners, that Jesus died for our sins, and that we're to put our faith in Christ and live for him. We are not out to make decisions. We are out to make disciples. It was a New Year's Eve night. I had just finished speaking on the idea of the new creation, and we were preparing our our thought processes for the bread and the cup that New Year's Eve. I noticed that there was a man who had come in at the start, sat alone by himself off in the distance. Couldn't make him up. But at the end of the service, he slowly made his way up front. A lot of people were out that night, and we were mingling around, and he asked, could I talk to you? And I said, certainly. He said, I was heading to a party New Year's Eve. 
and I felt incredibly compelled to just simply stop the car and come in here. And I don't know why I'm here. Now, that was a purpose issue. And so, as I so often do at the end of a service in conversations, I put the hand on the shoulder and ask, have you put your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ? And he said, tell me more of what that means. And I said, not to make a scene, let's shift to the side here where we can talk alone. It's one thing to enter a new year, but it's another thing to possess a new life, to be a new creation. And I shared how when one is born to this world, we have this old Adam-type nature. But when we put our faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, we are new creation people. This is not merely a New Year's matter, I said to him. This is a new creation reality. And he's swallowing hard, and he looks at me and says, no, I think I know why I stopped the car. I'm going to be moving this week. And I've never heard this before. And so I said, would you like to pray and put your faith in Jesus? And he said, yes. And so we prayed. His eyes are glistening at the end as he looks at me and he said, all I was trying to do was to get out of this old year and start a new one fresh. You've given me something more than a new year. You've given me this whole idea of a new creation. I'm going to have to explore this. And he left, and I never saw him again. But you can't shake that. God has a continual way of pursuing you. And while you want to continuously traffic in the old, what God does through Jesus Christ is to penetrate the old with the truth of the new. The challenge is, is that new creation people sometimes still want to maintain an old creation mindset. We need the renewing of our minds. That is a disciplinary process. New creation is firmly established. We're secured in salvation. A renewing mindset is an ongoing process that continuously aligns our minds to our position of being in Christ as new creation people. The old has passed away. Now dramatically, he utilizes that word behold the same word that Pontius Pilate used, behold, he would say, the men pertaining to Jesus. And now Paul says here, likewise, behold, the new has come. All this is from God. It's not from you. It's not from me. All this is from God, and then adds, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You will never find in the Bible where God is reconciling himself to us. No. God is reconciling us to God, you see. Now, dramatically, he develops that for us. 
I want to jump to verses 20 and 21 and see how this works itself out. Because fourthly, not only our aim in life, our purpose in life, and our perspective in life are controlled by this love, but fourthly, our role in life, likewise, in 2021, is controlled by this love. He draws this conclusion. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Notice the wording. For Christ. I was working out the original language, and I got to that point, and suddenly another biographical sketch leaped into my mind. A political illustration of the 1980s. George Shultz was Secretary of State during the Reagan administration. Mr. Schultz kept a large globe in his office. And when newly appointed, listen, ambassadors, ambassadors, had an interview with him, and when ambassadors from their, from their posts for their first visit with him were leaving his office, Schultz would test them. He would say, I want you to go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. These ambassadors would walk over to that standing globe off to the side of the Secretary of State's office, spin the globe, and put their finger on the country to which they were sent. Unerringly. But something different happened when Schultz's old friend and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed ambassador to Japan. Even Mansfield was put to the test. But this time, however, as the globe was spun, Ambassador Mansfield put his hands on the United States. He said, that's my country. That's whom I represent. You and I, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are positioned here to be ambassadors because our citizenship is in heaven, validated by the resurrected Savior. Spin the globe to your heart's content, but ultimately your purposefulness is attached to the one who died and rose again, giving you and me aim. Purpose, perspective, a role that nobody else can possibly match for you, tailored to new creation people. So that's why he says, your message as an ambassador 
in that party this Friday night. Your role as ambassador at work this coming Monday morning. Your role as an ambassador when you return to school is to somehow, someway communicate, be reconciled to God. And now check out the fours. Check out the fours in verse 21. For our sake. This is astounding. It doesn't even say for his sake. There's that word for. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Pause. It doesn't say the Sanhedrin made him to be sin. It doesn't say that you and I made Christ to be sin. This is sovereign grace. This is God the Father in his commissioning of God the Son for our sake. He's thinking of you and thinking of me, but notice who's in charge. He, God the Father, made him God the Son. And now these overwhelming words to be sin, but praise God does not end there. Who knew no sin. It's a way to describe the substitutionary work of Jesus dying in our place for you, F-O-R, for me, F-O-R. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now what he is saying to the Corinthian church and what he is saying to all of the local churches past, present, future. This is a message to believers on what to communicate to those who have not put faith and trust in Jesus. There is a reason for things the way they are, but there is a reason for what Jesus Christ came to do. And this compelling, constraining, controlling love grips our heart whether we're gathered or scattered, to communicate this. All your motives are good, Taylor said. But I'm afraid they'll fail you in times of testing, particularly when you're facing death for your testimony. The only motive that will empower you to remain true to your Lord is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, which I'll now just simply read in closing from the ESV. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's purpose for Jesus dying. There's purpose for you living. Let's stand together. So like that young man who came in on that New Year's Eve night, and the story is repeated continuously through the ministries of this church, we pray if there is anyone today who has made their way in 
not knowing Jesus, they put faith and trust in him. And for all, Father, who have, we pray now that this compelling love will motivate us, Father, to bring this sense of purposefulness, foreness to the forefront, and equip us, Father, to live for you and to communicate this powerful truth in your word to those who so desperately need this. We commit all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.